Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. Uh, damn it, I just had it. I, I hate when that happens. I know, I know. One of the things that led to the downturn in the equity markets in the fourth quarter of 2018 was the rapid ascent of bond yields, in particular the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield that peaked out at 3.23% into the early weeks of October. As interest rates tend to go higher, P.E. multiples tend to fall. This, we would argue, would contribute to the first half of the correction that we saw in the fourth quarter. Now, since then, we've seen bond yields fall. As the Fed has backed away from its interest rate posture, as we have shifted our view from the potential for three or four rate hikes in 2019 to two or fewer, the 10-year yield has receded to approximately 2.65%. 3.23 seems a long way off today. Question is, can we get back there? If not, how high could we expect the 10-year yield to go? Or is this it? And what we're going to see over the next little while, until the inevitable next recession, is a 10-year yield stuck in the range of where it is now, in the mid to upper 2% range. Listen on. This is Investments Unplugged. To investments Unplugged. My name is Philip Peterson. I'm the Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investments. And joining me today is Kevin Hedlund, my colleague, uh, also with Manulife. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Philip. Thanks for being here. Kevin, in this episode, we're going to be talking about fixed income. Joining us today is uh, Chuck Tomes, who is a portfolio manager with Manulife based in Boston on our global fixed income uh, strategy. Now, before we get to Chuck, obviously, we got to get to what you need to know. So I thought I would kick it off. And my what you need to know uh, ties into the economic environment, and in particular, the economic environment in China. There's been a lot of talk about China over the last number of months. We definitely have seen a slowdown in economic activity. The official Chinese GDP number came in at about 6.6% year over year, uh, so slower than what we've seen over the past few years. But what we want to do before we just take that number for gospel is look under the hood, right, and, and look at some of the other data that we can... Uh, examine to really try and identify the the real economic environment in China and what it might mean globally. So we've had issues of trade tensions between the U.S. and China. Um, we've had a lot of Chinese stimulus in the last six months in terms of tax cuts, in terms of interest rate cuts, and so on. But what is the data telling us? Often when asked about the environment, compared to 2015. 2015 was the last I would say mid-cycle slowdown, global mid-cycle slowdown. We saw that uh, not only in the U.S., but around the world. It impacted earnings growth. And one of the things that we point to in China is electricity usage, rail freight traffic, and auto sales. Now, in 2015, what we saw in terms of electricity usage through most of late 2014, early 2015, electricity usage was flat. And now what that tells us is that, well, you don't have increased output by the factories. Right. And so, you know, you're you're only producing uh, the same amount that you did the year prior. Then we look at rail freight traffic. Why? Well, if the factories are running at the same pace, 
are you shipping things? And here was the real telltale sign that in 2015 we had a real economic slowdown because rail freight was negative between 10 and 20%. So what that tells us is factories are running, warehouses are being stocked, inventories are building, nothing is shipping. That has negative consequences to earnings growth on a go-forward basis. We saw that. Okay, where are we today? Well, electricity usage up 7% year over year. Rail freight traffic up 7% year over year. So that tells us the factories are expanding, right? Output is, is growing and things are being shipped. So it's not the buildup of inventories that we saw the last go around. What's the real drag in China? Auto sales. Auto sales are down almost 20% year over year. And this is having uh, an impact in Germany, for example. You know, Germany uh, and China, very strong trading partners. China, in fact, is Germany's number one trading partner. Germany has seen a significant economic slowdown. I wouldn't uh, I, slowdown, not recession, right? Not, not necessarily at this point, but certainly a slowdown, um, but one that we think can, can turn around. So bringing it back to the what you need to know, is this environment similar to what we saw in 2015, where we had real concerns about earnings growth? In my view, based on what I'm seeing on some of the other data, the answer is a very, uh, very strong no. Slower growth, yes. Contraction or risk to earnings growth like we saw then, no. Yeah, I think it's uh, important to not just look at one piece of data, especially when you look at GDP. It's also a measure of year-over-year change. And you have to see that calculation GDP does not necessarily incorporate all the facets of the actual economy and running. And, and I, you know, another thing people look at is, is often um, Chinese exports and, and how much uh, they produce and how much leaves the country. What you really want to look at, again, is, is that real freight. Because what if those products are being manufactured um, but consumed within China? You know, and there's no exports, so exports are, are slowing down. Is that a good or bad thing? I would say it's probably a really good thing as you have the largest amount of uh, population in the world now becoming a consumer of their own goods. And that is a really good sign that that economy, whatever number it is, is actually based on good, healthy demand. Um, and it's more sta uh, stable and sustainable over the long term. Well, it's interesting you mentioned exports out of China. Um, the January data, we, what we saw was negative year-over-year -year export growth in South Korea, in Japan, in Germany, but positive in China. And so one of the things that I think we might be seeing, and this might be reflected in copper prices as well, is a bottoming of the Chinese economy. Uh, it'll be the first one of these that I just mentioned to show some positive signs and the others will follow. Uh, but I would say, I would argue perhaps we're starting to see some green shoots there. Uh, so to your point, you know, ex look at exports as well. Exports out of China, growing year over year, might not be a bad thing for Q2. My what you need to know is, is along the same lines, actually, and, uh, rather than China, looking at Europe, uh, you know, talking about bottoming. Um, now, most investors know that the U.S. equity markets have been crushing their European counterparts for a few years now. Um, and much of the negative view on Europe has really been due to uh, recent economic data, such as manufacturing, that is, is slowing. And, and um, you know, the, the uh, pace of growth has definitely uh, changed and is now as much slower than it was. However, it may not be as bad as many believe. Further, perhaps the data is already as bad as it's going to get. And it could be a case of it's so bad, it's actually good. Uh, for example, the euro area household sector has strong fundamentals in stark contrast to a decade ago. Balance sheets, balance sheets have actually been restored. Housing prices are rising. Employment is solid. Wages are increasing. And borrowing rates are actually low, which provides a lot of room for them to grow. This provides significant underlying support for the overall economy. Uh, furthermore, bank balance sheets have also healed more than generally acknowledged by investors, which reduces the risk of another credit crunch. 
With deleveraging forces progressively fading, credit trends continue to slowly improve within the region, uh, with Italy, of course, being the lone exception right now. In many ways, the euro area downturn appears very comparable to the U.S. slowdown in 2015-2016, which was also manufacturing-led and resulted in only limited contagion to the broader economy. Of course, the markets reacted quite strongly. Nonetheless, until the euro area manufacturing sector revives slightly, investors will remain uneasy and the ECB will maintain a dovish tone, much like was the case for the U.S. in 2016. That said, the surprise for investors could again be how quickly overall conditions firm up, given the increased underlying resilience of the euro area economy. At current market valuations, the worst case scenario might already be priced in. When I look back on 2018, uh, and one of our key calls favored international equities, and in particular European equities, I think, you know, obviously they didn't perform to expectation. And I look at it and saying, what did we miss? And one of the things I think we missed is at that time, at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, was probably the peak in the economic cycle for Europe. And we've seen in the past, Kevin, when the Purchasing Managers Index breaks above 58, you know, certainly 60 at that point in Europe, um, it tends to lead to underperformance relative to history on your one-year forward return. In the U.S., you know, when we see the PMI break above 58, the forward one-year average return is about 4.5%. Europe, I think the same thing. Europe was a case maybe a year ago. It was so good, it was actually bad. And to your point, what we're seeing right now, is it so bad it's actually good? Are we seeing a bottoming to, to your what you need to know, to my what you need to know? I actually think that that's probably the case. And I think if we start to see in Q2 some rebound here, that will show some acceleration of earnings growth at a time when valuations are really cheap. You know, Europe is starting to look very, very attractive. I, I think you can also be positive from a fixed income perspective as uh, you know, uh, government bonds, especially in Asia, start to look attractive when they have yields and their underlying data and fundamentals of those countries start looking even more attractive. And I think that's going to lead really well into uh, talking to Chuck and saying, where are you finding opportunities uh, outside of the traditional asset classes? Well, you know, I think that's a good lead into uh, to inviting Chuck to join us. So uh, listen on. Let's get Chuck on. Joining us now at Investments Unplugged, our good friend Chuck Tomes, uh, based out of Boston. Chuck is the uh, portfolio manager um, with the Manulife Strategic Income Fund, um, that also part of the team that oversees our global fixed income mandate. Welcome, Chuck. Oh, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming back so soon. I mean, we had you on in December when we talked about uh, the outlook for 2019, and it was it was a favorable outlook. It was it was you know certainly better than what we saw in 2018. And first couple months into the year. It's been a it's been a good fixed income market. We've seen spreads tighten in on credit across the high yield and investment grade. We've seen yields come down in terms or moderate uh, on the government side of things. So give us your overall impression of how the year has started. Yeah, it's definitely started off well, as we were talking about before. It's that we do feel you're going to see a more uh, favorable environment for fixed income overall. Some of the areas that came under significant pressure at the end of last year, specifically in December, we felt were a little overdone. And you have seen those areas like U.S. high yield, where spreads have tightened in aggressively to start off the year. And you're looking at the global backdrop overall, where, yes, it's not an accelerating growth at the same acceleration that you did see, but it is still a positive growth environment. So all of that with a more 
uh, tame central bank backdrop where they're not going to be ratcheting up hikes as fast as people were once expecting all has kind of added up to a, a good start of the year. So one of the things that we've been tossing around is that the Fed at this point with inflation as low as it is and probably going to stay there, we think, at least for the first three quarters of the year. And then in the back, uh, the last quarter, really only up year over year because of oil prices. So, you know, it's not really showing any real signs of inflationary pressure. The Fed, as Powell has kind of uh, suggested, backing away from aggressive rate hikes, they could be done, though. Like we, we could see the Fed pause through the whole year 2019. That's not necessarily our base case, but that's certainly a possibility. What are your thoughts in terms of the Fed uh, potential for hikes? Yeah, we think you, you can't you can't rule it out as a possibility that they are going to be on pause. An important thing will be watching financial conditions and how they react uh, going forward throughout the course of this year. Uh, you have seen them loosen and become a more loose uh, financial conditions backdrop overall so far this year. But it'll definitely be important to watch how things continue to go moving forward. Uh, similar to what you said, our base case scenario is that they still will try and want to hike at least one time uh, over the course of this year. But we feel you do have to kind of have that in the back of your mind and can't rule it out as a probability that they will be on hold. Chuck, have the, uh, have the markets gone almost too dovish uh, on Powell statements? And, you know, there, there's even talk of a rate cut. Is that on the table at all? Yeah, they definitely were too dovish in December. That's when things got overdone. The markets at that time, you saw start to price in the potential of a rate cut in 2019. And that has shifted uh, a little bit where the market is now still looking at the potential of a cut at some point over the next couple years. But they're not fully pricing in a cut at this point in time. Ultimately, it's going to be very important to see how the economic data backdrop does unfold. If it accelerates uh, weaker or stays the same or accelerates stronger, that will definitely determine kind of what the Fed will do going forward. And as you mentioned, the market has at times gotten a little too aggressive in terms of the dovish view of the Fed. So that is also where the risk is because the market isn't pricing in the chance that the Fed could go faster. What about the Bank of Canada? Do you have a view on the Bank of Canada? I mean, we believe that the Bank of Canada wants to raise rates. They want to normalize whatever the level that seems to be. I don't think they can. I think the economic conditions in Canada are weaker than the bank fully appreciates uh, or are going to get weaker than the bank fully appreciates in terms of some things that we look at, like auto sales and just overall consumer indebtedness, given the fact that we've already seen five rate increases out of the BOC. But uh, do you have a view there as well? Yeah, we do still feel that the Bank of Canada, like you said, does want to. And our base case scenario is that they will hike rates one time this year. Um, But similar to uh, the Federal Reserve, you can create an environment or make a case that they will uh, be on hold, especially if you do see data accelerating downwards. On the credit side, we've seen, you mentioned it, high yield spreads tighten. And they've almost come back to the, uh, the cycle tight, put it that way. We've seen spreads come in from five, approximately 520 basis points over on high yield to about 400, give or take. Do you see this as a positive sign that the U.S. economy is on solid footing and the confidence therein rolls into the high yield market? Or do you think that the market has gotten perhaps a little bit too ahead of itself? Anytime you see 
things move that fast, either widen as fast as they did at the end of last year or tighten as fast as they have at the beginning of this year, you definitely start to wonder, have things moved too far? And we definitely felt they did widen too much at the end of last year. They moved too far. And so we expected to see somewhat of a snapback. But as you mentioned, you are getting closer and closer to the point where things have maybe moved a little too fast in terms of tightening. Ultimately, when we view it, you're gonna you're getting longer and longer in the cycle. Uh, we don't see a recession this year. We don't see defaults massively picking up, but we have to be mindful of the fact that we are closer to the end of the cycle than we are the beginning. So ultimately, if we continue to see spreads tighten, we'd have a bias to de-risk. Uh, a little bit more and more as they continue to tighten. And that could change depending on how economic data either uh, accelerates stronger or weaker. It will depend on how fast we make changes to that portfolio. Looking at uh, at credit and, and kind of tying in the uh, the Federal Reserve, uh, what about the leverage loan market? You know, if the Fed is on pause, is there any benefit to owning leverage loans right now? Or are you, you're not getting the, the step up from the floating rate nature of it? Um, where's the position in the portfolio on, the, on floating rate right now? So that's an area of the portfolio we def- we've made a significant change to uh, since the start of the year. That's an area that we've taken down significantly, and it wouldn't surprise us to move. Uh, to completely exiting that asset class. Uh, The reason why we're doing it is, one, we feel you don't need as much optionality on rising rates because it's important to remember why you bought that asset class in the first place. And we started purchasing these back in October of 2016. So towards the end of uh, 2016, with the view that you'd see rates continue to increase over the course of 17, over the course of 18. And at that time, we felt continued increase over the course of 19. Now, as you've seen a shift where our view is that you don't won't see as much upward pressure in terms of central banks moving forward with rate hikes, and they're going to be a lot more tempered, you don't need as much optionality on rising rates. And we also have to remember that we are closer to the end of the cycle, and a lot of these securities come with substantial credit risk. A good portion of the overall leveraged loan market or bank loan market is uh, single B minus or lower. So taking on significant credit risk. So when you think about all of the different factors as to why you want to own it and why you don't want to own it, we feel it's probably prudent to take some of that credit risk out of the portfolio, go up in credit quality. And where you're seeing that it's okay to take down a little bit in terms of carry or yield to get more liquidity and uh, more defensive on the portfolio as a whole. Uh, so we have taken that down and and feel that it's probably prudent to do so. So where are those proceeds going? If, if you're reducing your leverage loan bucket, and this is a change from when we talked in December where you thought this was in a very attractive asset class, yep. but but things change fast and yep. it's this is important to respond to the environment and not just sit there and say, well, we said we'll sit on this for 12 months, let's sit on this. Nope, the environment changes, let's move. Proceeds of uh, the leverage loan bucket, where is that headed? So what we've done with those assets, they've gone into short-term investment-grade corporates. Uh, As I mentioned, you're going up in credit quality. You're not giving up too much in terms of yield as you're actually getting paid uh, to sit in those securities now. Not taking on too much more in terms of interest rate risk. And you're also massively increasing the liquidity profile. Outside of there, we've gone also about 5% of the portfolio as of right now into U.S. Treasuries. So that's a a shift as well where we have been avoiding U.S. Treasuries uh, over the past years. And this is the first time we're starting to purchase them. And it's really about looking at 
we'll never pick the tops of bottoms. We won't time things perfectly, but we try to capture the trends. And as we're getting closer to the next eventual recession, we're going to continue to start pushing the portfolio into positioning that protects during that time and making sure that we have the right securities in the portfolio that can perform well if and when that period of time does happen. Yeah, what you're, you're saying almost reminds me a lot about the portfolio in 2007, you know, starting to, to high grade the portfolio in anticipation of you know, when we get that next recession. And, and I, it's important, I think, for, for uh, investors to realize and, and remember why they are invested with your portfolio and what it is intended to do, not chase yield and, and return for per se, um, but perhaps act like a, a fixing and portfolio should when uh, time gets tough. Yeah, that's ultimately what we try to do. It's it's try to find the best opportunities on a global basis that are presenting themselves from the best risk award standpoint so we can deliver on our ultimate goal, which is exactly what you said. Emerging market debt last year had a, a tough go in part because the U.S. dollar uh, gained as much as it did against the, uh, the trade-weighted basket. Uh, If the Fed is going to be on pause, that means there's probably less upward pressure on the U.S. dollar, which in theory should be good for emerging market debt. Some of the negative areas that were negatively impacting emerging market debt at some points last year, we feel those risks have dissipated. One of the reasons being that the U.S. dollar appreciating last year, the risk of that uh, continuing this year, we feel has diminished. Um, And that would be uh, a tailwind as well as a trade agreement, which is our base case scenario, would also be uh, somewhat of a tailwind, especially for emerging markets Asia. Uh, So we do feel emerging markets overall, it is an attractive environment to continue to hold EM debt. But you do need to be selective because we do feel there will be a differentiation between the good and the bad within the emerging markets. And we have a bias to be in the economies that are exhibiting a strengthening of their underlying fundamentals. And we feel that is the more prudent way to allocate capital in this environment. So where would some of those areas be? um, uh, Like Latin America, is that uh, an area that you're looking at? So we do have Latin America, but the biggest weight uh, when you're thinking about our EM as a whole is in emerging markets Asia. Uh, Countries like Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, those are the biggest weights within our allocation there. And then in Latin America, we do have exposures. We have Brazil, Colombia and Peru within Latin America. So we still do like the emerging markets, but just feel that you have to be selective. I think that's really uh, where it comes down to the resources you have as a a global team. And I I think we talked about this before, but having those analysts and portfolio managers uh, on the ground in those Asia countries really help you identify the, you know, the good versus the bad areas. Yeah, we, we, we rely on them a lot and they can really give us good clarity into you know, what the true story and the true environment is in their local market because they're looking at uh, that market every single day and they really do have um, the innate ability to figure out exactly where you wanna be along the curve and they're really invaluable resources for us to tap into when we're looking at different opportunities on a global basis. When it comes to fixed income portfolios, one of the other things that you consider is currency. Now, last year we saw again that that strong rally in the U.S. dollar. What do you think in terms of currency positions, and in particular for for our audience, uh, it's really the U.S. dollar vis-a-vis the Canadian dollar. What's your view there? Yeah, we do think it's important to to look at this current environment where we feel that you could see the Canadian dollar strengthen versus some countries' currencies, weaken versus others, and be range-bound versus some others. So that dynamic approach to managing currency risk becomes that much more important. Overall, we do have our emerging market exposures open in the portfolio right now. 
But as you mentioned, most people always want to talk about the U.S. dollar versus Canadian dollar. So the way we see that today is that we are in a range bond environment, 74 cents to 77 cents uh, in the near term. And on our U.S. dollar denominated allocation, we have 80 percent hedge today. So 20 percent open. Now, that 20 percent is not necessarily a view on just seeing the US dollar appreciate versus the Canadian dollar. Why we have it is we came into the current earnings season with the view that there was a risk you, if you saw any of the large multinational corporations utilizing global trade, global demand, or global growth as reasons for why they missed their earnings statements, then that would kind of spook the market as the market is very sensitive to all of those factors. And it could induce a flight to quality type environment where equities would sell off, uh, high yield spreads would widen, high quality treasury yields would come down. The US dollar still appreciates um, in that environment. So what we wanted to do was hedge the areas of our portfolio that have the highest correlation or highest beta to the equity market. So that's how we get the 20% open uh, as, as a portion of the portfolio that can hedge if that did happen. I would say we're exactly in line in terms of our view on, on the uh, Canadian dollar. What's interesting is, is over the last couple months, there's been a complete breakdown in the correlation between the Canadian dollar and the two-year spread. Yes. So that's the difference in yields between the two-year Government of Canada bond and two-year Treasury in the U.S. Uh, and the correlation between the Canadian dollar and oil prices, WTI, has gone up. I, th you know, just tell me your view on this, but I think given where we are, roughly at around 76 cents uh, U.S. today, it wouldn't surprise me if, if that correlation started to pick up a little bit on yields and we saw a little bit of a reversion lower on the Canadian dollar. But within the range, as you set, 74 to 77, I think you know we could maybe see a dip to 74. Before, however, I think over the course of the year, oil prices move up. That's kind of our base case. Yep. And then the Canadian dollar ends up back roughly where we are today. What would your thoughts be? Yeah, we would agree with that uh, 100%. And the one thing we've learned is currency markets are very fickle. What, what drives currency markets does shift over time. And that's why we feel this does need to be managed 24 hours a day, six days a week, because the market will change in terms of what they're focused on as to the driver of a certain currency versus another. And being in constant contact and getting a feel of what that current driver is at any given time is very important. We would agree that over time, you probably would see the Canadian dollar kind of get to the same level or around the same level we are today. But it would not surprise us if you did see the Canadian dollar test the, the lower end of the range uh, before it does get there. And then would it be fair to su suggest that if you started to see some recessionary pressure emerge, then we uh, would anticipate that flight to quality of U.S. dollar, that, that that hedge would come off then? A lot of what we do is uh, sit around, talk about different scenarios, and, and make sure we have different so-called game plans or playbooks for, for what we will do. And that is one of the, the uh, game plans that we talk about if and when you do see the next recessionary environment. So very similar to what we did uh, during the financial crisis, where it wouldn't surprise us to see um, us kind of take on more U.S. dollar risk with the thought that it would benefit from the flight to quality environment if and when the next recession happens. Fantastic, Chuck. Thank you so much. I want to get to our lightning round. You're not going to escape without the lightning round. You can never so. let me go. So we are heading into spring break season. Uh, a year ago, we were asking our portfolio managers, what was your most memorable spring break vacation? What was yours? Mine? Um 
I unfortunately did not get to take any spring break vacations because I was always playing hockey uh, during spring break. So I uh, was not really benefiting. So I'm kind of boring in that situation. Mine was alone on campus with just the team while everybody else was out having fun. And I'm sure that team did nothing ever after the games, just sat around, just, you know, analyzed the tape, talk about the games, and then went back into the rooms and yeah, studied. It was, it was actually good because it gave us some extra time when other people weren't studying to get ahead. Oh, there you go. Good for you. Okay. Um, Risk of recession, do you think it's 2020 or, or later? Or even perhaps earlier? Probably the technical recession will be later, but this time around, we do not believe the market's going to wait. If you look at how markets have reacted anytime there's been a miss from earnings or an, a major economic data point versus a beat, the market punishes the miss way more than it rewards the beat. So we do believe that gives us a good, clear indication that the market is going to probably feel the majority of the pain before the tech next technical recession happens. But ultimately, the next technical one, late 2020, early to, through 2021, if you're going to pin me to a time. Over or under on the yield curve inverting? I'll give you six months. Over or under? Over. Over? Really? Yeah. Interesting. I thought you would have said under. You know, I, I'll, no. I'll take the other side on that one. We'll I come back. And, I know. We'll we, come back we'll in come six back. months and see where we are. <laughs> La- was that? That's whiteboard yeah, totally a whiteboard <laughs> bet. All right. Last question. Um, Bruins or Maple Leafs, which one is most likely to make it through to the Stanley Cup final? You can say neither. No, I got to say Bruins. Well, is that, that in one. hopes of Montreal? Montreal's not going to get anywhere. No, you saw the probabilities to Montreal. And was that probability for them to get in the playoffs? Or that was the... probability of the win Stanley Cup. Montreal was at 4.5%. Toronto was at 22.5%. I don't remember where Boston was, but let's say somewhere in between. Yeah, it was probably 22.7 um, for the Bruins. <laughs> but no, I, I got to say the Bruins, but I will say Toronto has been looking very, very good. And it would not surprise me to see them make a run, especially with their young guys that are uh, you know, kind of untested and they could... They're very, very skilled and could easily make a run. That sounds like you flip-flopped on that one. You said the Bruins or the Leafs. It has, you have to pick one. Which the one Bruins. Bruins all the way. Okay. Well, we're going to end it right there. End it where you're going to be wrong. Why not? Uh, <laughs> Chuck, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. Kevin, that was another good conversation with Chuck in terms of what their or how they are approaching the fixed income markets um, after an already really strong start in 2019. You know, clearly you know, the worst is behind us. I, I would continue to reiterate that, that what we saw in fixed income in 2018 is unlikely to repeat this year. Interest rates are not going to be moving up as quickly. What really jumped out at me is the shift from uh, Chuck and the team away from leveraged loans. And it makes perfect sense and it's something that we've been thinking about in terms of our model portfolio as well, in that if the Fed is done raising rates, then the opportunity set in leveraged loans isn't as attractive. You no longer need that interest rate protection. And so you're protecting yourself against something that is unlikely to happen and you're taking on some liquidity risk. So why not remove that liquidity risk, get rid of that interest rate protection that you don't need and shift to uh, better opportunities within fixed income. That's what the team's doing. I think that's a very prudent approach at this point. Yeah, we uh, as we make shifts to our portfolio on, on a quarterly basis, that's our, that's our, our, our mandate for our, our team. Uh, you know, I'm meeting with clients now and, and seeing that 10% floating rate uh, sleeve in our model portfolio and uh, telling, you know, kind of giving advance warning that we're, we're likely gonna shift that at the end of March and, and because that's what we do again on a quarterly basis. And we get questions, well, why didn't you do it at the end of December? And my answer is that 
things changed. You know, in December, uh, the Federal Reserve was was still you know, somewhat hawkish, still in a plan to probably raise rates two or more times in 2019. And then in January, they came out and, and really cooled that hawkishness. And you know, I don't want to say dovish, but now we're seeing maybe one to two rate hikes. And again, if that's the case, you're not going to get that uh, step up in that floating rate. So why take on the additional credit risk, especially as we get in towards the next uh, eventual recession, for a non-existent incremental uh, yield? Well, it comes down to the fact that markets are fluid. Things change. Powell went from being hawkish October 1st to being more dovish at the end of December. And therefore, your positioning, I think, should reflect that. And asset allocation as such needs to be fluid needs to change given the environment that we're going into. So exactly, you know, when we look at our model portfolio and we're coming to the end of the quarter and we're looking at at where, if at all, we want to make any shifts, you know, one of those shifts perhaps will be reduce our equity weight from 65% to 60%, but also reducing that uh, that uh, fixed income allocation to leveraged loans that is no longer needed in an environment where interest rates are probably going to be more benign over the next 12 months, as opposed to seeing a rapid increase in interest rates, which is what we had in 2018. So I think it's good to end it there. Kevin, thank you for, for joining me. And thank you to our guest, uh, Chuck Tomes, for joining us on Investments Unplugged. This has been Philip Peterson. And Kevin Hedlund. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investments to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investments and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife Mutual Funds are managed by Manulife Investments, a division of Manulife Asset Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede Know Your Client Suitability, Needs Analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.